not to like stroke any egos on the guys at weird <laughs> but they've got a really awesome setting and it's something that you know i've really immersed myself in and i just i love all the intricacies of it you know it's like interdimensional it's <laughs> steampunk it's arcane it's literally everything yeah it, you know people say it's like the kitchen sink but it's like gumbo yeah. you know it's, yeah. it's everything goes into the pot and it turns into something just absolutely wonderful we all know the stereotype of the writer egomaniac self-involved thinks that their words are a gift to the world I will say it's nice to sit down with someone who breaks that mold. Mike Wallace is a down-to-earth person. If you're a fan of Weird Miniatures and Malifaux and its lore, you probably have already read his work. He's written several things for Weird. I got a chance to learn his unlikely story of how he became a published author. We learn what it's like to write in somebody else's world, what's great about being a freelance writer and what's hard. And since we've recorded this, he has published his first novel, under the pen name M.G. Gallows, everybody can go get Death Dealers. We talk about the book, where you can follow Alex Foster, Necromancer, as he contends with dark magic, secret societies, silver-tongued femme fatales, undead frat boys, and a drug-peddling cult seeking the ultimate high. If that doesn't hook you, I don't know what will. Well, sit back, relax, and let's find out why Mike Wallace loves to write. Enjoy. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. In a world where life hits you from all sides, you deserve time to relax, disconnect, and unplug. Pool books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today, we're talking to freelance writer Mike Wallace. Listeners who play Malifaux likely know his work for weird games. Many faction books, chronicles, and other weird publications feature Mike's work. So, Mike, welcome to the third floor. Thank you, Craig. It's good to be here. So, I know you're a writer, but what I don't <laughs> know is whether you play games or not. So, are you? do you consider yourself a gamer? I do. I do. I live kind of in an isolated area, so it's always tricky to find people to play with, but uh, I do have a kind of a close-knit group. We play D&D, Magic, you know, board games, anything we can really get our hands on. Of course, uh, you know, the last year being what it is, it gets hard to get together, but still a gamer. <laughs> well, good. So how did you, how did you first come across tabletop gaming then? What came first? Was it board games? Was it role-playing games? Was it magic? Oh, a long time ago, it was, uh, I think magic in high school, you know, briefly. It was a little too expensive for my days back then. <laughs> you and back then it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, D and D was big into that, uh, vampire, the masquerade. Nice. You know, anything that I could get my hands on that was really lore heavy. You know, I love to dig deep into like those old clan books for vampire and all that and just immerse myself in that kind of stuff. So was D&D your first role playing game? Yeah, D&D was. Oh, and I played uh, a little bit of, what was it? Mutants and Masterminds, I think. It oh, was. yeah, yeah it was, that was a good old game. Yeah, I couldn't get the hang of it for shit, but I... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's okay, but uh, yeah, I remember playing like a bat mutant. That was a lot yep. of fun. I was maybe like grade six. I barely knew what I was doing, but I was having a hell of a time. It, what's funny about that, Mike, is and, and there's a lot of younger listeners that I have that don't realize um, what it was like to be a gamer, you know, back in that time, back in, you know, the 80s and 90s, pre-internet. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I remember getting the red box of D&D having no freaking clue what role-playing was <laughs> getting the red box, opening it up. And God, I could have been, I could not have been more than 12 years old, um, mm -hmm. which means my brother would have been eight, 
right? Uh, and unfortunately for him, he's the person I always want, you know, I had to play with uh, to start off with. So I pull that thing out and I start reading. I'm like, I have no idea what this is. Like, I, like what what did I do? Um, and, you know, slowly figuring it out and you kind of trudge through it and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, there was no actual play podcast. There was nothing like that. <laughs> so your experience with mastermind, uh, mutants and masterminds is, is something I completely relate to where you just, you just kind of figured it out with your buddies. Yeah. It was really just something you'd, you'd play with. You'd look at all the cool pictures and, you know, oh, I want to make, you know, that kind of character. I want to make some kind of vampire monster that, you know, has all kinds of weird powers and <laughs> I want them to have a soul eating blade and all that kind of stuff. Like, well, maybe when you get to a higher level, that'll something that could happen, but. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> now, did, did you consistently stay with games um, or was there a period of time where you took a break or. Yeah. Like after I got out of high school, I didn't find many players like, you know, the group that I'm with now, they're like high school friends. Got it. But I wasn't really playing with them at the time. So I kind of drifted away from it. I tried to, uh, I tried a few things in the area, you know, like I was into D and D like I bought just a ton of books when 3.0 edition, I guess you could call it came out yep. and 3.5. And I, you know, I loved all the lore. I just couldn't find anybody to play with. And I'm yeah. uh, figuring, well, maybe I could try and turn this into something I could write for. I tried uh, Wizards of the Coast was a lot more open to writers back then. So I was trying like pretty much monthly to get in with them. Unfortunately, that kind of bubble burst long before uh, I could get in, get my foot in the door. Right. So it kind of put a damper on that. Just basically the hobby in general for me. I think there was a few years there where I was, I wasn't playing anything. You know, I played video games. But yep. I wasn't into the tabletop scene anymore. And that was unfortunate, I think. It... Well, what, so the reason I ask that is it's, I always think there's two points that are usually interesting to me for gamers. One is, you know, what got you in to begin with? And it sounds like it was, you know, you and a bunch of buddies at high school. But what what happened to you, you know, it's for different reasons, we take a break, right? Um, we, yeah. we, break, we break up with the hobby. We drift away from the hobby. But I'd be curious, what brought you back? Well, I think I was about maybe 24, 25, and I had like a random meet somebody who was looking for players for a D&D game. Well, actually, it was Star Wars, I think, at the time. You know, the this was pre-fourth edition D&D. Right. So he was looking for players for uh, Star Wars. We played some Star Wars. That was pretty cool. Uh, we got into Warhammer, and I... You know, being the kind of guy who loves to absorb lore from these games, Warhammer was a real rabbit hole for me. Like I was I bet. <laughs> just deep into the whole this. It's like this is all so awful, but it's also kind of awesome, you know. Yeah. And I think I went through oh, three or four different armies on both like the fantasy and the 40k side. Crazy. And <laughs> I never found one that really satisfied. Well, I like them all, but I'm terrible at strategic war gaming, (laughs) you know, it was always, you know, that kind of thing. Oh yeah. I got this big army of like ogres or space wolves or something like that. So I was like painted them up and I was ready to play. And then I get into the game and I just get my butt kicked so hard. (laughs) And it can be a bit of a, a bit of a downer. Sure. You put that much investment into something and you're just so awful at playing it. But, uh, after that, I think, uh, I kind of put Warhammer aside. I sold off all my models, you know, as a lot of people tend to do. Yep. And then I think about 2016 or so, I was just exploring uh, one of those wikis that has all kinds of information on tabletop games and stuff like that. And I came across the entry for Malifaux. And, you know, the lore drew me in right away. (laughs) <laughs> so I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. This is everything I could want. You know, it's it's got the horror. It's got steampunk. It's got fantasy. So I went oh, to their website. That. What's that? Yeah, that's that's great. And actually, what we'll do, Mike, is because I want to really dig into this part right right now. So let's take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk to talk to Mike about really him discovering Malifaux um, and, you know, him becoming a writer. So we'll be right back. 
There are so many online retailers. It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You will find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift and you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. So we got a chance to get a sense of, you know, Mike is a gamer. And like I said, you know, his path is similar to a lot of people. Um, and uh, we started talking about him discovering Malifaux. And uh, I really want to spend a, uh, do a whole segment about that. So what I want to do now is take go back in time again, Mike, um, and kind of learn uh, when did you start to figure out that you you like to write? Um, or was it a situation where you always wrote? Um, like there was a day where Mike didn't write. And then Mike started writing, and I want to get a sense of of, of what happened. I think I was about thirteen. Wow! <laughs> Before that, I I didn't care for writing. You know, I I read books. I enjoyed books. I think the book first books I wrote back then were like uh, they were adaptations of the comic books of the alien stuff that Dark Horse was putting out. Nice. So this was like you know guts and gore and violence and sex and all that kind of stuff yeah and i was like 13 so i'm like oh man this is the coolest stuff you ever saw you know so i i sat down i think with uh a friend he wasn't a writer but he had some funny ideas and we just started writing all kinds of just whatever nonsense came to mind you know just two guys who just get drunk and they just go blow away a bunch of monsters and you know the kind of stuff that you'd see a 13 year old reading Right, right. Writing. But the experience of it, you know, typing it out, it was a lot of fun. And so I just kind of, I grew from there and I was doing all kinds of different writing styles. I was a bit more into anime back then. Not so much these days. I've gotten, I just grew out of that kind of phase, I guess. But yeah, you know, you watch a lot of stuff back then. Uh, three by three eyes. Uh, <laughs> Helsing when that came out, uh, sure. Fist of the North Star, you know, it's it's oh, edgy. God, that's, that's old stuff. That's yeah. good stuff, though, man. It's good stuff, but it, it was still edgy as hell. We got to, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, just gory as heck. And that was that suited me fine for a while. But as I grew up into you know fantasy and sci-fi and stuff like that, branching into different areas, I didn't have a lot of sex or success with it uh, professionally. I guess I considered it more of a hobby at the time. Well, so let's talk about that a little bit, Mike. So, you know, I've got a lot of friends that are professional writers. Um, and I think the one thing that may, that all of them have in common is they were voracious readers. Mm -hmm. um, I've yet to meet somebody who makes a living writing that that did not just was not a voracious reader as a kid. Uh, and it sounds like you were the same way um, that you just love to read. Um, but and and a lot of us, I'm one of them, you know, wrote, right. Cause we love to read so much. We had stories in our heads and, you know, we, you know, I would write short stories and stuff like that, but there's a transition that happens, Mike, where you start realizing it's more than just a 13 year old kid writing about aliens and having sex out in outer space. Right. <laughs> yeah. When you start realizing, you know, that stories have structures and, and it, it, it's taken it becomes a craft as opposed to a hobby. So I'd be curious for you, Mike, when did that start to happen? When did you start to realize that I just can't throw up on a bunch of pages and it's, and it's a story. And I think it's cool that writing is something more than that. Yeah. When uh, the wizards of the coast guys, when they were open to the, you know, more amateur writers, I guess you could say uh, looking for new talent, new blood and all that kind of stuff. That's when I got really into the fantasy and the forgotten realms side of it. And I would, you know, I'd merged myself in that. I bought a bunch of the books. Uh, I've got just a ton of them on my shelf. You know, the Symbia series, probably one of my all-time favorites. I just love how diverse that was. Uh, I think it was Paul Kemp. He had uh, Erevis or Everest Kale, the mm -hmm. uh, assassin butler. He was just 
amazing to me. Like this uh, kind of a modern take on more of the edgier stuff we used to read as a 13 year old. Sure. So I wanted to really get into that. So there was this, I guess, a mental push where I just wanted to write stories that would be fit for that kind of thing. It wasn't always the case. Like my brain didn't completely click with it. I had some really zany ideas that I knew would just get shot down, but I went for them anyway. Maybe that's why I didn't make it into that field, but it, it convinced me that, you know, if I want to get forward as a writer, it's just something that I've got to like, I got to learn the craft. I got to learn, yeah. you know, the, the techniques, the grammar, obviously. It takes a shit ton of work to be a good writer. It really does. Yeah. yeah it's, and uh, one of my good, good friends who was uh, on the podcast, my podcast about uh, uh, play mm-hmm. and the importance of play, Patrick McLean, he's a professional writer and been my best friend. Uh, I don't know, coming on 30 years now yeah. and more than 30 years now. Um, he, the one thing that he preaches all the time is you've got to do the work. You've got to do the work and that's that you have to read. You have to write. You have to write again. You have to get feedback. You have to accept that feedback. You have to reject the feedback. Like, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and you've got to do it all over again and you have to write a whole book and then throw it in the garbage and then write another book, you know? Yep. And, and um, he just, he just preaches that. Um, so you, it sounds to me, Mike, that you realized that, you know, you're going to have to take it to another level, right? That you're going to have to um, approach this in a different way. And so how did you go about doing that? So when you decided that, you know, this is this is something that I'm going to have to put some time into, well, what did that look like? Well, for me, it was uh, kind of a combination of just blind luck and just never really letting go of that interest I had in world building and, you know, characters and stuff like that. When uh, the whole wizard thing kind of dried up for everybody, I moved on from that. I didn't, you know, I would read. I wouldn't write much. But uh, that kind of what brought me into Malifaux. You know, I'd, I'd done a few st- short stories here and there, but uh, I saw the information on Malifaux. I really liked it. I went onto their website. I saw they were actually looking for short story writers, you know, freelance writers. Yep. And it was just this, like, you know, there's this thing in my head that just said, you know, probably not going to make it. You can know, <laughs> throw it at them and they'll just, they'll say, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. And then, you know, you both go your separate ways. Right. But I figured what's the, you know, what do I lose no. by taking that chance? So I wrote to them, you know, I gave them a sample of my work and I, apparently they liked it and they brought me in and that's led to like uh, I think it's about four years now, five years almost. That's crazy, man. So, so is is it safe to say that Weird is your first professional gig? I would say, yeah. Like, wow, it was later in my life, but it is the one that uh, kind of stuck with me the longest, you know. So, so what changed for you then, Mike? What happened between the guy that was submitting stuff to to Wizards and the guy that submitted stuff? To Malifaux, he's not the same writer, obviously. No. So, I, so what changed between your first gig with um, Mal, uh, with Weird and your rejected samples that you gave Wizards? I wish I had a clear answer on that field. Uh, well, what the hell, dude? <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Like, you must have felt something at the time, Mike. But yeah, but, but like, looking back on it, Mike, you can't think about you know, like how you changed as a writer over that time. I think the way that it played out is that uh, there was always that part of me that says, I can do this. I just have to find the right, you know, the right ear, the right eyes, the right reader, you know, the right setting even in certain mm-hmm. cases. And I think in a way that's, that's just what it was. You know, you can hear about all these writers who they write brilliant stuff, but they never get any buyers. You know, they never have any readers until they hit a certain market or a certain group of people. Yep. And then they just explode. And I mean, I haven't exploded yet. I mean, I'm still pretty far, small time, but I have found that uh, Malavo is a really good setting. It's really interesting to me as like uh, from a creative side. And I think I've just, you know, found the right ear, I guess the right, the right kind of style that people will respond to. Well, so here's a question for you then, Mike. I mean, it's very possible 
that you found the right ear, right? That, that, mm-hmm. that you came across an audience that enjoys how you write. The other possibility, and it's probably a mix of these two things would be my guess, is that Malifaux gave you a voice, right? That you were able to find yourself as a writer in that setting. Do you think that that's possibly part of it? You know, I absolutely do think that's part of it. You know, not to like stroke any egos on the guys that weird, (laughs) but they've got a really awesome setting. And it's something that, you know, I've really immersed myself in. And I just, I love all the intricacies of it. You know, it's like interdimensional, it's steampunk, (laughs) it's arcane. It's literally everything. (laughs) Yeah. You know, people say it's like the kitchen sink, but it's like gumbo, you know, it's, it's, everything goes into the pot and it turns into something just absolutely wonderful. Oh, that's so cool. Well, guys, let's take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I really want to dig into uh, what is obviously Mike's passion, which is uh, Malifaux and writing for Malifaux. And I wanted to really kind of discuss um, what that process looks like. So we'll be right back. Howdy, friends. Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. I think it's really neat. Um, how you, you know, you just found something that, that you found an audience that liked what you wrote and you found a place that gave you a unique voice. Um, and you know, we talked about before the break, Mike, you know, what it was that, um, that, that you were passionate about. And it sounds like the the setting, but it sounds like you were a lore horror for a long time, right? It's just, a, it wasn't just a weirds lore that you loved. I mean, if there's one thing that we heard when we talked about you as a gamer and as a reader, you like, you love lore. Yeah, world building is like this huge passion of mine that if I had a chance, I'd just sit down and write books about that kind of stuff, you know? And I'd be curious, is that, did you, how do I want to word this? Were you a world builder who found role playing or were you a role player that realized they loved world building? Hmm. I think uh, since I was kind of playing early on, but never really got too deep into it until around, you know, when I picked up my first uh, Forgotten Realms campaign book and I read how much, how many details were in it. Yeah. And how cool that was, how it kind of, it realizes the world in a way that you can't really get from just, you know, pen and paper numbers on a page kind of thing. I think I just, I wanted to try something like that. And I did try to break into like the RPG side of it for a while there uh nothing really came of that uh it is something that requires like a group of people yeah. to work on and i i found one or two groups of people but uh with any like amateurish kind of teams you have those moments where you just kind of like either the ideas don't mesh together or the the work you know the people you're working with don't really mesh together so you just kind of drift apart and nothing really comes of it and well, I think the key to that whole sentence and that whole was work. Um, I have found like when a bunch of bunch of people to get together to say, hey, let's kind of throw this around. When it gets to the non-fun stuff, everybody's like, yeah, I got the stuff to do. I, can't, yeah. I don't think I'm going to be able to help you out. <laughs> <laughs> they want to do the fun stuff. But when the work starts, they they disappear on you. So, Mike, for you, what is it about lore and what is it about world building that, that has inspired you so much? What do you love? Why do you love it so much? Or what is it you love, I should, is a better way to put it. I guess I just like the uh, creating new worlds is like an exercise in all kinds of different ideas. You know, you you can create a monstrous race of something with like four arms and stuff like that. And that's kind of cool, like visually. Right. But I like to think about things like, you know, what do they eat? What do they <laughs> hunt? You know, what is like, 
an arm wrestling match like for a forearmed race? You know, do they get all forearms involved or something like that? Is that kind of look important to their development as a culture? You know, is that kind of thing, you know, viable for when they're all voting for like who's going to be in the next king or something like that? You know, where do they live? What kind of environment do they prefer? These kind of details, they just like draw me in, you know? So you get like a, a race of goblins or something like that. Like, what do they build their weapons out of? Well, if they all live in a swamp, maybe they build them out of like, you know, sticks and rocks or clay or something like that. Well, if they like clay, you know, maybe there's something we can work with that, some kind of special clay. Maybe they poop it. Maybe they <laughs> poop clay, and then they like shape it into swords, and it's like this really smelly metal, but it's really tough because there are certain types of ceramics that are like strong and, you know, powerful. So it turns is that is that for you, Mike, just a, a creative exercise that you just really enjoy doing? Um, or, you know, is it a situation where, you know, in school you loved history and you loved, you know, figure, finding those details in history and, and, and you like creating your own? I, I'm trying to dig into this a little bit because it's fascinating. Yeah, I think maybe it's like a, I guess, a kind of escapism for me, you know? Sure. I'm a, I'm a fairly shy, socially awkward kind of guy, you know? Even coming onto this show, I was like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. What am I? I'm nauseous. I'm nauseous. Oh, boy. Well, but... it's going terrible. I'm having a terrible time. So <laughs> I know, right? Like, <laughs> my stomach is doing flip-flops right now, covered in flop sweat. Oh, God bless you. You're doing great, man. We, we got this. We got this. Um, so you, you you found yourself, you know, socially awkward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, something that, you know, high school for me was just hell. Yeah. You know, for, for a lot of people, I'm sure. Yep. And so having like, you know, those books where you could write all kinds of details down and just immerse yourself, get yourself into it, like above your head kind yeah. of thing. So you don't have to think about, well, I got to deal with this and I got to, you know, I got a job I got to go to. I got to do this work, homework and, you know, all these people hate me and nobody talks <laughs> to me and they think I smell. And <laughs> Yeah. No, it's, I'll tell you, man, it's, it's the, ben, it, the, the world of fantasy and sci-fi has been that for a lot of people, a lot of people. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of um, interesting work I've read that talks about, um, you know, you know, people who uh, are socially challenged growing up finding refuge in fantasy and sci-fi. And they do that as a form of control. Right. So it, it allows for some to, to find control in a fantastical world where you can manipulate things, right? Where you can say, this is now true. Why? Yeah. Because I said so. Absolutely. And it's all made up anyway, so you can't say otherwise, right? <laughs> and and it gives you a sense of control that sometimes you don't feel in, in your real life, um, which I think is, is absolutely fascinating. So let's get back to talking about uh, where we were before the break. So you, you find the lore of Malifaux and you're like, holy cow, this has literally got everything. Um, you say, you know what? I'm I, you know, I, I, I find weird and I'm going to shoot them a note, uh, send them some samples. They come back. Holy crap. You're going to write your first story for, <laughs> for them. So first of all, what was, what was your first published work for weird? Uh, the first one was, uh, I believe it was chain. No, Allegro. It was, uh, in their Chronicles E scene, uh, issue 24, I think June, 2016. Yeah. Wow. And that was, uh, I think it was one of their form contest stories. So, so what was the story? Well, just bare bones, no spoilers, obviously. <laughs> bare bones. Uh, I think it was a just a group of nobodies trying to break into uh, one of the insane asylums in Malifaux City, and finding out that the head doctor there has been kind of experimenting with one of his patients, and turned him into kind of like this surgically addicted nightmare monster that starts hunting them through the hospital. So, yeah. Are that, you are you allowed to be alone with children? <laughs> that sounds awesome. My lawyer says I'm not supposed to answer that question. So. That's right. That is really cool. So this is the part that I find very interesting. And I've had other writers on the show um, and, uh, and I've dug into this a little bit. Um, as a writer, you're, you are natively creative, right? Um, that, that is one of your tools, um, mm -hmm. is the ability to create and, and to push and to go to places and explore things and stuff like that. But in this scenario where we're just saying, you know, we'd like you to write us a story, there's guardrails in place. There's guardrails 
by the by the world, right? You can you can only do so much and still be Malifaux, right? Yeah. Um, this is not your world. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine there's constraints given to you by Weird or any other uh, uh, company. So yeah. I guess if you can go either talk about that scenario or another scenario, I what I really would be interested in is what are you given to work with? So uh, like when weird comes, they don't just come to you and say, write something, right? <laughs> um, can you give me an idea of, of, of what they ask? Yeah, generally I find that uh, when someone from weird approaches me, you, you know, these days it's Kyle. Yep. Uh, they have a bit of an outline and, you know, something in play that, uh, you know, this is what we'd like to see. This is how we'd like it to start. This is how we'd like to, it to end, you know, there's a little bit of leeway in there. Obviously, mm -hmm. you always got a bit of a creative outlet, but it's all meant to uh, interconnect, you know, it's the fit together with the different short stories that are in each book. Right. So there's about 70, 30, you know, they have the structure, the outline in mind. I tend to ask for a little bit more detail. I think I, I respond well to that kind of uh, direction, basically. I find ways to work within that, that, you know, give me that creative side to it. And generally, yeah, Kyle is, uh, well, all the guys that we're, are really uh, receptive to, you know, if I bring an idea to the table, if it works within what they have, they can work it into it. And uh, yeah, the, uh, the going back and forth, you know, they bring me the outline. I say, okay, this is what I, this is the idea that I had to fill in, you know, go from point A to point B. And then they'll come back to me and say, yeah, we like that. We like that. Uh, maybe you could move that out. You know, if there's an idea that they feel doesn't gel with what they want. So, so what, do you, what, do you, what are you giving back to them that first time, Mike? Are you giving them back a story or are you giving back uh, kind of an enhanced outline? Like, what does that first, here's what I'm thinking weird look like? Yeah, it's the first outline. You know, they get the, the bare bones. I get got something it. that's got a little bit more flesh on it. But it doesn't quite have the skin, you know, as they say. Right. The idea is just to build on each section, not too complicated, not too many details. You want to have some freedom to work with it later. But as long as you have something for them that uh, fits in as a story, they seem to be pretty good about it. That's cool. And so after that, you know, once we've uh, hammered out an outline that works for both of us, we'll sit down and write it through. So, so Mike, Mike, the world builder, right? You, you're handed this outline um, where uh, you're told, you know, here's the characters. Um, here's kind of where we want you to start. Here's kind of what we want to see happen. Here's how we'd like it to wrap up a little bit. Um, where does Mike, the world builder flex? Where do you find what you love to do in that process with those type of constraints? I think my favorite areas to work in when I'm when I'm writing a story like that is to play with uh, you know the personalities as they're designed and with like dialogue, inter-character conversations and stuff like that. I seem to do really well with uh, you know the conversations in uh, what was it postmortem mm -hmm. between Seamus and you know Nicodem and McMorning that interplay between Mad Men where they're just being goofy as heck and, you know, Seamus is talking to his bells and Nicodem finds the whole thing repugnant and that kind of thing. I find I can be most creative in that, just having that kind of like, you know, how do they react when they're kind of banging heads together in that kind of situation where they can just sit back and have a conversation. So that it sounds like that might be where you find your what if, right? So what if, like you were talking about, you know, what if goblins had clay? It sounds like here you'd say, well, what if I take these three characters and personalities and put them in a room together? Well, what does that sound like? Yeah, exactly. You know, when you have someone like Seamus, who's this crazy psycho serial killer, kind of like the Jack, or Jack the Ripper of the Malifaux City, you know, how does he treat his bells? when he's not, you know, just sending them off to fight. Right. Until he treats them like they're still alive. He kind of pantomimes everything. They're not really sentient, I don't think, too much. They're just kind of responding to his mental commands. So having them act out like they're alive and fawning all over him and stuff like that, it's kind of self-indulgence when you think yeah. about it. Yeah. And Nicodem recognizes that, and he just like, will you stop pretending that they're still, you know, your girlfriends or whatever? It's just unseemly. and. 
Seamus thinks it's just a shame that Nicodem doesn't play along, you know. <laughs> That's really, really cool. Um, so writing dialogue's hard. Um, is that just something that you um, found you were good at, or did you have to put a lot of work into it? Yeah, strangely, like, I'm, I don't think I'm a very good conversationalist myself, but when I'm writing, I tend to get into the heads of the characters that I'm writing for fairly well and get a gauge of what, you know, how they'd speak, how they sound in their own heads, how they'd sound in my head. Right. It's just fun to see that kind of go between. It's more spontaneous than planned, really. So Mm -hmm. it's it's always interesting for me when I'm writing it, what kind of reactions that they'll get just by introducing, you know, a phrase or two. So I'd be curious, Mike, when you're, you know, a writer's first editor is, is, is themselves, right? Um, So when you're doing the editing, where do you find yourself doing the most work? Um, so you, you've put the first draft down, you've mm-hmm. laid, you've laid, laid the first layer down, and now you're starting to go back and go through the revision process and the editing process. Is there a certain part where you find you end up doing more work than other, other aspects on your second run? Yeah, I think that um, as far as technical skills go, I'm probably not the most professional. <laughs> I don't think any editor would tell the same thing. It's like, did you even read this before you handed it in? It feels very much like a, you know, a rough draft here. No, no, I, I read over it twice. I swear, you know, those two repeated words in the same sentence are intentional, intentional, you know? <laughs> so it's, I try to, there are programs that I can use to kind of help me, you know, find these things. Cause when I'm reading my own work, I am so bad at finding my own mistakes. Yeah, that's like, hard. You know, six months later when it's already been printed and I'll be reading through like a book and I'll be like, oh no, what did I do? Oh, and I'm yeah. embarrassed as heck. And I'm sure a lot of writers feel the same way. They look back at their old work and just, oh, that was so garbage. I think I've gotten pretty good at it. You know, like uh, working with uh, the guys at Malif- or weird, sorry, just going back and forth. You know, I'll send them the second draft. They'll say, say, okay, this works, this works. Uh, you know, there's some stuff missing here. I'm like, oh, geez, I missed that. Okay. <laughs> and I'll sit down with <laughs> like entire paragraphs that are just gone. I am getting better. I still consider myself a pretty poor editor as far as things go, but I am getting better at noticing my own foibles. And I, I think I've improved quite a bit over the years. Uh, that, that's good, Mike, because that's hard. It's hard to do. And and yeah. I'll tell you what, I, I do a lot of writing professionally, um, which is super boring. But um, <laughs> one of the things that helps me a lot, um, because I had the same challenges, was reading reading out loud. Like I, I, I could write an email, right, to, to very important people. <laughs> and I could read it and it would be fine. And oh, yeah. then I send it and then read it again two days later. And I'm like, I, I, I like I, I'm writing like a nine year old. Like, yeah. I'm so embarrassed. I sent this. But <laughs> for some reason, it messes my brain up a little bit when I read it to myself out loud, because then suddenly like the bad structure, right, the, a crappy sentence and, and a tense F up. Absolutely. <laughs> Just yeah. for some reason, by reading it out loud has helped me a lot. So I completely understand, man, because it is. It's hard. And it's, and it's, and it's another thing I've hear from a lot of writers is that no good, no good, no good writer did not have a great editor. Right. Um, Absolutely. 100%. That, that, yeah. <laughs> and, and which makes a ton of sense to me. Um, so there's a lot of people listening right now, Mike, um, who their story is close to your story up to the point where they've never been published. You have. Um, so I'd be interested to know for them, what, what, what do they, what sucks, right? So there's not every, not everything about being a writer and getting paid to write is great. What sucks about it? Uh, I think uh, when you're a freelance writer, sometimes finding work can suck. Yeah. Uh, when you do find one, sometimes, uh, I know some people can feel constrained by the restrictions placed on them when they're working in a shared setting, like Malifaux. Uh, they get this mindset that, you know, they want to be just have free reign. They want to, you know, create these great characters and have all kinds of things happen, but you are working within a structure. You're working within someone else's work. So it, it's something that you got to like, you know, gauge yourself mentally with, you know, know when to hold back and know that you're, you're writing for somebody else. You know, you're not writing your own world. I know that there have been uh, some writers that I've talked to 
they won't work in shared settings because of that. They've had some bad experiences, and I, I understand that. Yep. And uh, I know when you're writing freelance, you know, there's never a guarantee of future work. Right. I consider myself very, very lucky that words come back to me again and again. You know, I must be doing something right. Otherwise, you know, they would have been like, okay, see you later. And then, you know, nothing. <laughs> oh, no, dude. I mean, yeah, there's no question, right? I mean, they're not idiots and they're not they're not paying you with donuts. So obviously what, you know, what you're doing for them is worth it, which is, which is awesome. So guys, we're going to take another break. And when we get back from this break, I want to talk to Mike about something coming out. So Mike has been working on and will be soon publishing, uh, self-publishing his book. And I want to talk about his book. I want to find out what it's about um, and uh, kind of dig into what that process is. So we'll be right Hi, I'm Alexander Zdanchuk from Riga, Latvia, and I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars. Those guys open the beauty of Malifo 3rd Edition to me and continue to provide tons of great content. You can support them too. Follow the links in the show notes below or search for Third Floor Wars at patreon.com. What is it worth to you to get this podcast on a weekly basis? Is it worth a dollar a month, $5 a month, $20 a month? If you'd like to help support the work that we're doing here on Third Floor Wars, please go buy our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash thirdfloorwars. There you can pledge at any level, any dollar amount. Whatever you give us will help us put out quality content on a regular basis and hopefully make tabletop gaming a little bit better for you every week. Time to give a shout out to our newest patrons. A big special thanks goes to James Kahn, Rage Quit Wire, Deck Roll, Aloy, Robo Rotten, Jacob Suderman, Joshua Hatch, Donald Kroger, John Fox, and David Gadea. Because of you and the 100 plus that are supporting us on Patreon, we're able to put out regular content on a weekly basis. We appreciate it. Howdy friends, Craig here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code thirdfloorfriend, all one word, T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R-F-R-I-E-N-D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So Mike is going to, has um, been in the process, um, and I'm not quite exactly sure how far along we are. I know we're getting close to to publishing time, but uh, you've been working on a book, not a not a story, not something for weird, but something of your own. Um, so let's start off, Mike. Can you give me the elevator pitch? So what is this? Let's talk about setting. So where is the book set? Uh, the book's uh, urban fantasy set in modern times, you know. And uh, in terms of an elevator pitch, I guess you got a, a necromancer who's framed for murder. He finds out the Illuminati is real and run by wizards. And so he's got to clear his name before this hex they put on his heart turns him to ash. Very interesting. So we got some high stakes there. Um, so now I want to talk to Mike, the world builder. So it's it's modern urban fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you say modern urban fantasy, that's got there's all kinds of things that could be and that could not be. Um, it sounds like uh, magic is real um, and it's a part of the world. Is magic always been part of the world? Yeah, absolutely. The idea behind these uh, mages is that they're born with their powers as they grow older it develops into a specialized kind of form. Uh, The main character in this, Alex Foster, he's a necromancer. So at some point during his teen years, he was exposed to something that, you know, shaped his personality in such a way that he turned into someone who can, you know, play with the dead and control the undead and stuff like that. And mages live maybe 
one, two centuries longer than normal people. Oh, wow. And so their power grows over time as they do it. So when he meets the Illumin these Illuminati types, uh, they're called the Rimbolt Society in the book. Uh, they're run by mages who are, you know, they're older than the United States. So they're the kind of godlike power that, you know, you'd figure that the Illuminati would be wielding if they had magic. And and does everybody know that magic exists? No, not at Got all. It. It's uh, that whole kind of the, the masquerade, you know, the veil that keeps everybody a secret. Uh, the setting is very inspired by, uh, you know, the Dresden Files. I don't know if you've read yep. Jim Butcher's work. Uh, yep. John Wick, you know, the movies that came out, that kind of slick hidden underbelly of like ultra rich types, you know, they get dressed up in nice suits and then they go and kill each other in spectacular ways. So there's that, right. that's the kind of the world that Alex kind of finds him in. It finds himself in. He uh, starts out very toes deep. He knows he has magic. He doesn't realize that there's this whole, you know, community living underneath the shell of the world kind of. So when everything goes, you know, belly up for him, and so he gets framed for murder. And then like the corpse walks out of the morgue, you know, that makes him look absolutely guilty. And then he's brought before these, the society and he's like, Oh my God. And like, I am so far down the rung in terms of like understanding the world. I got to like catch up fast or I'm just going to get killed. <laughs> so it was, it, it then is when he realizes when the veil is lifted, right? And when he really gets, starts to get a sense of what the world is now outside of magic, are there other hidden fantasy elements that, that he finds out about? Yeah. Uh, when we meet him, he's already spent about a year taking care of a group of undead. They're whites, you know, so they're like zombies, but they're intelligent, right? And as long as they eat human flesh, they won't rot away. So he's got to find meat for them. And he does that kind of like, uh, he works for like a black market guy called Piotr. And he goes to crime scenes and he removes the body, you know, basically gets it to stand up and walk out with him. Hopefully, but without getting caught, obviously. And then he takes it home and, you know, chop, chop. And then he takes the meat down to, served. to be served. Yeah. And, it's not an ideal solution. It obviously doesn't make Alex the best person. Right. You know, in terms of morality. But, you know, the alternative is these whites getting hungry and maybe going out and find somebody who's, you know, some innocent on the street and chowing right. down on them. So yep. it's, he's kind of a drug dealer. He's kind of a, a petty tyrant. But he's he's almost has to be in order for them to kind of leave live these normal lives as normal as they can be for undead. That's fa that's fascinating. So now that we get a sense, uh, Mike, of of the world a little bit, right? We get a feel for it. I want to go back in time again. Like, where the hell did this come from? So, <laughs> when when did when did this seed start to sprout? I think uh, just around 2018. Oh, not that long ago. Not too long ago. No, uh, I had gone through like a bit of a bad breakup, and it was kind of messing with me mentally. I needed something to really take my mind off things. So I started writing an entire novel, you know, and I think it took me a little over two months to write, but then I went looking for, you know, how can I get this? How can I make a, a proper professional go of publishing this? And I joined a bunch of like writing communities online on Twitter, all that kind of thing. And it was kind of like an eye opener because I've always been kind of solo about these kind of things, but meeting all these people and learning more about, you know, the guts of it and the, the bones of it, it uh, really helped me. I met like uh, a trusted reader, they say, like a beta reader, someone yep. who can read over your stuff and like give you proper feedback and even editing help when you're developing it. I think I had like three of them. Wow. <laughs> and they were all like, you know, this is pretty good. You should try for it, you know, try and get it published. And they gave me some great feedback to improve it even further. I think I shopped it around for about a year and a half. I, I didn't get many biters, you know, right now it's in terms of like traditional publishing, it's uh, very bottlenecked. I find uh, not to detract from anybody who wants to pursue that path. I guess, you know, it's easy to get discouraged when you, you, you send something out, you get rejected and it's like, Oh, well, I guess nobody wants my work. Well, there might be an audience for you out there. So I decided like, uh, I would try and pursue the self-publishing path 
And one of my trusted readers, Paula, she's from Australia. She's great. She's incredibly talented, incredibly creative. Uh, you know, she's got all the technical skills that I've kind of like let languish in my own toolbox, so to speak. She, uh, she actually made me a challenge during uh, July of 2020 there. She says, you should write erotica. <laughs> write an erotica story, self-publish it under a, you know, a different pen name. And I'll, I'll keep that name secret for now. <laughs> and uh, learn the ins and outs of self-publishing that way. Very interesting. So she passed on some books and, you know, I read through some of them. I browsed a few others. I kind of needed my hand held for a few parts, but, you know, that's just kind of like me. I'm, I'm someone who works well with direction more than, you know, self-initialization, I guess you could say. Well, and that's a whole different world. And um, for, for listeners uh, that listen to the Dennis Detwiller uh, episode, he's the guy that uh, um, helped create um, one of the early creative minds behind Magic the Gathering and the creator of the Delta Green uh, oh. RPG. One of the things, and unfortunately for you, Mike, even if you listen to the listen to the podcast it hasn't come out yet while we're recording this um but make sure you listen to the episode when it does because one of the things that dennis talks about is um he refers to traditional publishing as as uh, as a zombie he in his mind it's already dead it's just not not everybody has realized it yet um and one of the things that he talks about is that um how i can't put it as well as he did but essentially uh, it's a great excuse for people not not to take the next step and get their stuff out to the world, right? So they can they can uh, um, they can blame the publishing industry. You know, nobody I can't get through there. And he did. He also talked about in the context of RPGs. He's like, if you if, you know talks about people that say hey, I've got a great RPG, uh, but I you know I, all, the only thing people want to play is D and D. And he says, oh, that's a great excuse for the fact that you have a crappy RPG. <laughs> yeah, and he says in, in this day and age, there's no reason you can't get your work out there. Um, that the barriers, the the problems that traditional publishing fixed aren't problems anymore. Yeah. And, and that's why he thinks it's a dinosaur industry. Um, and it sounds like you're headed in that direction a little bit too. Yeah. It's the way that things are shaped up. It just feels like uh, there is like a bit of a self publishing boom going on and it's never been, easier to kind of get into that from you know writing the story to getting it published you know putting it on whatever kind of uh, market you want to put onto you know amazon has its own publishing you know systems yep. and you can feel daunted by that kind of thing but if you ask the right people the right questions you know you know i have paula to kind of crack a whip over my head quite literally you know she has like the whip cracking gif that she flashes me every time she thinks i'm being lazy and it's it's something that I think more people should look into. You know, it it does require a bit of like being able to sell yourself a little bit better online, building, yep. you know, subscribers to newsletters and getting your coming on podcasts. Yep, podcasts, of course. <laughs> you know, the best venues. <laughs> so it's uh, it is it is a bit of work, but at the same time, I think the uh, the advantages to it, the benefits of being able to hold on to your own IP you know, your intellectual property, uh, to write what you want to write and publish what you want to publish. And it's so much more like you're, you're freer to do that. Yep. And if you manage to make it in that industry and it does require the work, it requires a lot of like uh, content creation. Cause this is like, you know, the information age, if you want to sell yourself, you need to have something out, you know, fairly regularly, keep your name above the water. Exactly. It can be really rewarding. And, you know, if you succeed in that venue, you succeeded because of you. Exactly. Yeah. And yep. that can be a huge boost to your self-esteem, you know, for, as a writer. No question. And, you know, one of the things that uh, I have found true just doing my little crappy podcast here is that so much of it is is you you just finding something that you love to do and then putting it out in the world and finding out whether <clears throat> other people love it, too and love how you do it. Right. Um, and that, that's very fascinating. Um, very, very fascinating. And like, I, I'm amazed when I come across self-published work that I just love and it blows me away that it like not everybody's, I can't believe everybody's not reading this or I'll listen to a podcast and 
and I'll, I'll say to myself, like, this is, this is like unbelievably good content. And I know it's a boutique podcast, right? I know that, you know, they're only getting a couple hundred or a thousand or two listens a month. Um, but I can tell like, this is really good. Um, but that's part of the beauty of the fact that like, if the, if the funnels were there that you were talking about, Mike, I never would have heard that podcast. I never would have read that book. Um, and and you find the audience and the audience finds you. Um, but to your point, it takes work. It takes a lot of work. And, uh, to, to, for Dennis's point, not to bring that up again, but you, you don't, you run out of excuses. Exactly. Because, you know, if, if, if you are unsuccessful in that venue, it's because you either weren't good enough or you didn't do the work. Yeah. Um, and there's something very freeing about that. And there's something like a little scary about that too, I would think. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, I guess with the, the self-publishing is like, if you put it out there and it doesn't work, well, you either, you know, if you don't sell anything, then you fail to reach the audience. Yep. If you sell something, but it comes back as like, well, this is crap. You know, there's a lot of critics ready to stamp on you. And there's always a ton of critics ready to do that. Sure. Uh, I guess that's when you know that maybe you should go back to the drawing board in terms of like, you know, what you're writing and, and why, but uh, I feel that you can still like it, there's still a lot of benefits to working on that side of the fence. You know, when you're working as a, a self publisher, like I said, the ownership of the IP is a big one for me because I'm yeah. enjoying this Alex story and I want to hold on to it. You know, as, as I was pitching it to these different publishers, I was thinking, you know, what if, you know, four books in, they don't want to publish it anymore, it's not selling enough. Well, what if I want to continue selling it and I want to publish yeah. it myself? Well, I can't do that because they own the right. rights to it now. And that can be like a, a severe drawback to your creativity, you know? No question. Or, or if you get a vision of the IP in a different format, right? Um, you're, you're, you're handcuffed and you have to go and pitch your, your IP <laughs> to the company that owns it because it ain't you. Right. Um, and that, that, that's gotta be, uh, that's gotta be tough. Um, well, Mike, that was all really fascinating. I think what it did for me and hopefully it's for the listeners is give a little bit of insight um, in, in what it means to do what you do. Um, so uh, Mike, for those people that are like, holy cow, I can't read to re- wait to read this book. What is the best way for them to stay in tune so that they know when this book comes out? Uh, right now, I've got a website up. It's just a cheap website, uh, mggallows.wordpress.com. Uh, there is a sign-up sheet there for the newsletter. Um, it, getting subscribers to the newsletter is a big way for me to help uh, share it with other promotions stuff like that. You know, people will see how many subscribers I've got. They'll go, okay, you can join this promotion. You know, we'll help you spread the word of your work. So the more people that sign on to that, the better. Uh, I am offering like a free story that comes with that. It's just a short story, but it's kind of like a prelude to the book. Uh, I'm planning as, you know, time goes forward to release more freebies, you know, free stories for people to read leading up to the publication of the, the big book. So I think, yeah, if they could just go to uh Go to the website and sign up. It's right there on the front page. That would be a, a great way for me to help reach other, you know, more people and market myself up on the uh, internet superhighway or whatever. <laughs> I like it. All right. So, Floorheads, here's what we're going to do. You guys are going to grab the link in the show notes. You're going to go there and you're going to sign up for the newsletter. Um, and that's going to give you that prelude. Doesn't matter whether you read it or not. Right. But let's get let's get um, let's get our names on there. Let's build that list for them. And for those of you that are listening, and I know there's a lot of you that are kind of excited about this concept of this kind of second layer world. And it sounds like there's some mystery in there, some intrigue, uh, enough fantasy that it's going to tickle. I know a lot of the listeners. Um, This will be an easy way for you to find out that when the book becomes available, uh, that you can grab a hold of it. Mike, I really appreciate you coming on, man. (laughs) <laughs> it's great, great to be here, Greg. I, I was nervous as heck, but I'm feeling pretty good now. So You did a great job, dude. You did a great job. And for those of you that stayed till the end, thanks for listening. Take care. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch so you don't miss the avalanche of content we create. Links are in the show notes. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest in gaming apparel and gear. 
There you'll also find the latest information for the USFO Tour. Find out where you rank in your conference or even in the entire United States. Get those models built, painted, and ready so we can see you at the next USFO Tour Masters event. Please take a moment to write a review of this pod on your favorite platform. Rating and reviewing helps us find more listeners almost as cool as you are. Be sure to share this feed with all of your friends who love tabletop gaming. Thanks for listening. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. Awesome. That worked out perfect, man. (laughs) I I have no idea when the switch hit in my head. But you you see, you don't give yourself enough credit, man. You do know what the idea was. You just, you just, you just, I just had to tease it out of you. Mm. <laughs> All right. Um, what I'm probably going to do, Mike, is probably drop a break. And I think I'm going to combine these next two segments. Okay. Because I, I can smell that they're going to end up getting combined anyway. Sure. Um, so I'll probably just kind of weave it through, um, which in no way impacts you i'm i'm the only one that should be looking at the sheet anyway but um uh you just sit back and just have a conversation with me but um don't be surprised if i start talking about what it's like to be a freelance writer um you're like well what the hell craig i'll bring us i'll bring us back we'll start talking about weird hey are you still here look uh the podcast is over And you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, too, while you're at it, on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.